0: if you have not joined me already in Micah chapter 3, I'd invite you uh, to turn there in your Bible as we continue our exposition of the book of Micah. Um, Remember the first week I I explained to you that the book of Micah is structured in this way. It's got these three kind of symphonic movements. Uh, Each one is made up of these sections of of a minor key and a major key, judgment and salvation, judgment and salvation flowing back and and forth, ultimately crescendoing with this ultimate promise of, of hope at the end of the book that God is going to rescue and restore his people. So last week, Micah's rebuke of the people, as he was finishing out this first major section of the book of Micah, focused on these idolatrous, covetous desires that led uh, powerful, economically powerful people to exploit their power and abuse the most vulnerable people in society. And we ended with this, this very short two verses promise of, of hope that God was going to send uh, a ruler, uh, a king, to break his people out of the slavery to sin and the exile that they had found themselves in because of their sin. And now we're back to the beginning of another section, so we're right back to talking about judgment. Now, the first three chapters, the majority of the first three chapters of the book of Micah are all about judgment, so if you're discouraged, come back next week. We're going to talk for a couple weeks about hope and salvation in chapters 4 and 5, but here... In chapter 3, on his whistle stop tour of indictments against Israelite society, Micah is moving from those who have economic power to those who have official power. It is power by, by virtue of the offices that they held. Here in Micah 3, Micah is taking aim at the, the political and religious leaders of Israel and Judah, calling them out for their wickedness and ultimately laying the blame. For Israel's downfall squarely on them and their corruption, which has led the people astray. This corruption was, was centered on the, the leader's neglect, and more than that, their outright rejection of God's law. And that's more than just a, a religious problem for Israel. Right? Israel was a theocracy. It was God's nation. And God's law was not just a religious or moral code that was adopted by those who chose to, to worship him. It structured and regulated Israelite society as a whole, spiritually, morally, socially, politically, economically. And so these, these high offices in Israelite society, the kings, the prophets, the priests, were tasked with seeing that God's law was maintained and administered For the glory of God and the good of the people. Israel's kings were to establish and enforce God's law. Israel's priests were to instruct the people in God's law. Israel's prophets were to correct and call people back to obedience to God's law, and as a result, Israel was was designed to function as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a, a model people who were going to reflect God's glory, his holiness and his character to the rest of the world, they were to be a city on a hill, a light to the Gentiles. Of course, one glance at Israel's history shows that that was emphatically not what was going on in Israel. They were anything but a shining example of godliness. But the problem wasn't that they didn't have the right legislation. It it wasn't that they didn't have the right governmental system, the right spiritual disciplines, the right church order. God had given them his law to govern all the aspects of this society. And God's law, like everything else that God says and does, is good and right and true and perfect. There didn't need to be any amendments to Israel's constitution. The problem in Israel was the people. They, like all people, were sinners by nature And choice. And nowhere was that more visible than in their leaders. Israel's leaders were continually corrupt. The prophets, the priests, the kings, the very people who were to to lead Israel in faithful worship and obedience to God's law were themselves the chief idolaters, the chief. Lawbreakers, and in turn, they led the people into more and more idolatry and sin. They put the the whole nation on a trajectory towards spiritual and political disaster. And so, given that's what's going on in Israel at the time, these corrupt leaders become the next target of Micah's prosecution. We'll see in verses 1 through 4, he targets specifically the political. Leaders, particularly those who have judicial responsibilities. In verses 5 to 8, he moves from the, the political realm to the religious realm, rebuking these false prophets who are leading people astray. In verses 9 to 12, he then combines these two. He adds in the priests and he levels charges at the leadership of Israel in its entirety. So as we work through the text this morning, we'll look first at the corruption of the political leaders, then the corruption of the religious leaders, then Micah's summary of the, the corruption of all of Israel's leaders, and finally we land on how Micah's expose of the corruption of human leaders reveals our desperate need for the incorruptible rule and reign of God himself. Let's pray, and we'll begin in Micah 3. Oh God, open our eyes to behold wonders from Your Word. Lord, by Your Spirit, teach us. Teach us that we, we may believe what Your Word teaches, that we may obey what it commands, and that we may trust what it promises. To the glory of Your name and for our good and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. First then, verses 1 to 4... Micah takes on the corruption of Israel's political leaders. Read with me again in verse 1. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel... Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, break up their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Micah calls out the leaders of Jacob and the rulers of Israel. And and the focus here is, is specifically on these political and judicial leaders. First and foremost, the king and his ministers. It was these, these leaders who had a responsibility before God to embrace justice, literally to know justice, which isn't a, a command to merely have a cognitive understanding of what is just and unjust, nor is it simply, simply not to, to love and value justice. It's more than that. It, it's, it's a more active quality. It's it's to make just determinations and rulings, to, to rule in a way that is unimpeachably just, and just according to God's law and not according to their own assessment of what is right or fair. They uphold what is right in the sight of God according to his word. So we need the the, the outside objective ruling of God's word to instruct us in what is just because regardless of what we might feel or think, our ability to determine what is right is skewed by our own sin. If you're a parent, you understand this. Something I frequently hear from my children is that that's not fair. What's very interesting about that is very often what they're saying is not fair is actually fair. They just don't like it our desires skew our understanding of what is right and fair and just and so we need god's word to to reshape our understanding of what is right and so in israel that was the responsibility of these these leaders it was the The call for Israel's leaders to embrace and establish and uphold justice in society. And that was clearly commanded of them in the law. In Deuteronomy 16, the the Lord said that the people were to appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Then in the very next chapter, there's a, a related command for what should happen when a new king ascends to the throne. When the king comes to the throne, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law so that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all the words of the law and these decrees and not turn from the law to the right or to the left. So in Israel, the king's first assignment was to complete a bit of homework from God. He was to write a copy of the law for himself so that he would know it and be careful to practice it and uphold it. And all this is because Israel's leaders governing God's people, the people for God's own possession, were especially to represent and reflect God's own character in their rule. But Israel's leaders clearly did not do that. They didn't embrace justice or faithfulness to God's law at all. Rather, Micah shows us that they perverted it. They are those who, while they should embrace justice, in fact, hate good and love evil. This is the very opposite of the Lord himself, when we read in Psalm 45, loves righteousness and hates wickedness. So what follows in Micah 3 is as Micah calls out this this sin in in the leaders, is a, a graphic, vivid description of their crimes, their injustice, their abuse, their exploitation of the people. So later in the passage, we get a little bit more detail as to what exactly the nature of these. Sins are, they, they despise justice, they distort all that is right, and they judge for a bribe. So Israel's political leaders are rendering unjust decisions and exploiting the people in ways that benefit themselves rather than establishing and exercising justice according to God's law. And this terrible perversion of justice is described in verses 2 and 3 with this visceral imagery of cannibalism. They tear the skin from my people, the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan and like flesh for the pot. A very similar accusation to what we read in Ezekiel 34, when God pronounces a woe over the shepherds of Israel because they only take care of themselves. They don't take care of the flock. They slaughter the choice animals. They don't strengthen the weak or heal the sick or bind up the injured, that you have not brought back the strays or search for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. And these are not literal descriptions of cannibalism in ancient Israel. They're figurative descriptions of how the leaders are abusing the people. It's a dereliction of duty in the highest order. The leaders of Israel, those tasked with ensuring that justice was done in society, they were guilty. They were supposed to punish the guilty and protect the innocent, uphold God's law and honor it. But they were corrupt and wicked, caring for themselves and their own power rather than judging fairly and according to what God's perfect law said. And God is clearly not pleased with this situation. The abuse of authority by those who have power is a a particularly wicked sin in the sight of God. Not only because of the effect that it has on the victims, because it also mischaracterizes God himself. All human authority, in one sense or another, is derived from God, the ultimate authority, the one who alone has sovereign power. And those who have authority to exercise have a responsibility before God to exercise it in such a way that it reflects His goodness and His justice and love and holiness. But as Lord Acton famously said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so human history is littered with examples, tragic examples of those who abuse their authority for their own benefit and at the expense of others. And as we read here, this was certainly the case in ancient Israel. As a result, in verse 4, we have a a description of the judgment that these corrupt leaders have brought on themselves. But but unlike in the previous chapters, which God's judgment has been seen in this kind of calamitous conquest of of enemy armies coming to, to take over Israel and take the people into exile, here the punishment takes on a different and I think far more ominous tone. Look at verse 4. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but He will not answer them. At that time, He will hide His face from them because of the evil they have done. The great judgment upon these Leaders is not viewed primarily from the perspective of of the incessant assaults of their enemies, but rather the excruciating absence of God. Others have cried out to them for justice in times of distress, and they have shut their ears to them. And so in like manner, when when these corrupt leaders find themselves in distress because of their sin, God does not listen to their cries. God, the source of all life and blessing will abandon these leaders to the consequences of their sins. Verses 5 to 8 then, Micah moves from the political leaders to to the religious leaders in Israel, particularly these these people who claim to be prophets. And we find that they are not faring any better than their political counterparts. Look at verse 5. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. So these false prophets are the, the same group that Mike was addressing last week in, in Micah 2, and they're back at it again here. So the prophets were to only speak God's word at God's command and for God's purposes, and yet these so-called prophets did nothing of the sort. They spoke what was desirable for their audience when they wanted and for their own benefit. Like I said last week, there's, these were nothing more than ancient prosperity preachers. To those who can give them something, Micah says, they proclaimed peace. That is, they would preach favorably for those who could pay them well and offer them security and power and influence. But those who cannot or will not play their game, they curse. They change their message based on what the audience can give them. And so whatever they claim to be, they are not messengers from God. But that doesn't stop them from masquerading as true spiritual leaders and abusing their position of spiritual authority to exploit the people and line their own pockets. You need only turn on the TV to see examples of this. Just as Israel's political leaders opened themselves to God's abandoning judgment, so did Israel's... False prophets. Again at verses 6 and 7. Therefore night will come over you without visions and darkness, without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed, the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. So like the political leaders in verses 1 to 4, these false prophets be doomed and disgraced in the end. They had compelled others to fill their mouths with food, and now they find God refusing to fill their mouths with his word. They were unwilling to hear God's word of of correction and rebuke in the present, and so they will hear nothing from him in the future. And So again, God's judgment here takes on this this form of the withdrawal of his protecting, life-giving, light-bringing presence. They've abandoned him, so he gives them up to their sin and withdraws from them. they we'll find no support from God at all. Where God's presence brings light and revelation, they find nothing but darkness and silence. On account of their sin. These false prophets are a stark contrast from Micah himself, who we see in, in verse 8 offers, offers a, a contrast to, to his role as a prophet from, from theirs. In verse 8 he says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. This is what a true prophet does. This is what those who claim to be prophets should have been doing. But they are just empty men with empty words. And on the contrary, Micah is is not empty, but is filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might. And Micah, like the Lord for whom he speaks, shows no partiality. He does not reward those who pay him with favorable prophecies as if he's some kind of soothsayer with a crystal ball. He's commissioned by God and committed to speak only what God says, regardless of whether the people will like it or not. And they didn't like it very much. So this would not have made Micah especially popular. Telling people that they're in sin does not endear you to them. But, but Micah's prophetic commission was to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And so Micah will go on in verses 9 to 12 to do just that. And here he, he, he broadens his assault. He moves from these surgical strikes on the political leaders and on the spiritual leaders to a more general indictment of all of Israel's senior leaders, prophets, priests, and kings. Look at verse 9. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. This summarizes the the corruption of the leaders in, in Israel. They, they despise justice and distort all that is right. So it's not just that they neglect justice. They actively despise it because it doesn't benefit them. And so they, they twist and distort God's law until it becomes utterly unrecognizable and works in their favor. Then he continues, they, they build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. And this is a, a figurative way of speaking about how the leaders have built the very structure of, of Israelite society not on the justice of God's law, but on the injustice of their own desires. Their corruption is sown into the very fabric of the nation. And so it's not surprising here that we find in verse 11, at the, at the root of the leader's corruption, like we saw last week and like we saw the week before, is idolatry, covetousness. Verse 11, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. All three of these key offices in Israelite society, the kings, the priests, the prophets, are marked by their their insatiable greed. And this greed, this idolatry, leads them the corruption of their roles and the abuse of the power that they are entrusted with. They're willing to pervert justice and distort God's word for the sake of profit. And perhaps most monstrously, they do all of this under the guise of spirituality. Look at verse 11. They, they judge for a bribe, they teach for a price, they tell fortunes for money, yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. This is a particularly disgusting and reprehensible and blasphemous sin to covet, lie, steal, cheat, abuse, and then claim God's support, approval, and protection. They claim that God is with them even in their open sin, and so God's punishment is fitting. They claim He is with them, supporting and approving their corruption and sin, so He makes His disapproval exceedingly clear by abandoning them. The last of these three announcements of judgment against Israel's leaders here is, is the most dramatic in verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. So he's prophesying about the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem. But it gets worse. And the temple hill will become a mound overgrown with thickets. The temple, the, the place of God's presence, the symbol of his dwelling among his people to bless them and keep them, will be destroyed. And the hill on which it stood become nothing more than ruins overgrown with thickets of trees. The people abandoned him, so he abandoned them to the consequences for their sin. At this point, the temple is no longer called the house of the Lord. It's simply the house. The Lord has moved out the ultimate sign of his judgment. I mentioned a few weeks ago that we know the city of Jerusalem was was not destroyed in Micah's day. The temple was not destroyed uh, in in Micah's lifetime and ministry. So though Jerusalem did end up being besieged by the Assyrians, it was ultimately spared. And in Jeremiah 26, we read that It was King Hezekiah, one of Judah's few godly monarchs, who responded to Micah's prophecy here in chapter 3. Looking back on this, some of the elders of Israel say uh, that Hezekiah heard Micah's prophecy. They quote uh, Micah 3.12. They said, Hezekiah heard it, feared the Lord, sought his favor, and so the Lord relented and did not bring disaster he pronounced against them. Micah's preaching was not fruitless. It brought about repentance and reprieve from the coming judgment of God. So God was more than ready to show mercy, as we know from the the book of Micah, and throughout the whole Bible, he delights to show mercy, and he showed mercy to to Hezekiah and the nation when they turned and sought the Lord. Now, we might be tempted to stop there and to think that the primary point of the passage is that the the problems in Israelite society and the problems in our society are just because of corrupt leaders. So we read the text as if the point was to say to leaders, don't be corrupt. And we read it as if the people at large were to draw away from from this text and say, okay, the point of this text is that we need to choose better leaders who aren't corrupt. And And we tell ourselves, if we could just get the right leaders in place, then things would really get better for our country, for the church, for the world, and so forth. But I would argue that the point of Micah 3 is not that we simply need better human leaders. Even better human leaders who know and follow God. Because even when when Israel had better kings like Hezekiah, people who sought the Lord and followed his law, they inevitably failed. And even when they had good and godly kings, they died. Their successors often did not follow in their footsteps. And the same is true for Israel's spiritual leaders. The prophets and the priests were often just as corrupt as the kings. And and even when they weren't, like the kings, these godly spiritual leaders inevitably died and left corrupt and ungodly successors. Israel's history is a story of the steady corruption and sin and failure of its leaders, which is both a a reflection of the spiritual condition of the people and and directly affects their spiritual condition. So we read a a blunt summary of the the situation in Israel in in Ezekiel 22, where he says, Israel's priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. Her princes." in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. The answer for Israel was never to be found in looking for a better human king or prophet or priest. And to think so would be be an exercise in futility. So we, we read again what our call to worship in Psalm 146 instructed us. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Instead, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. The point of Micah 3 is is that the corruption of these human leaders reveals our desperate need for the incorruptible reign of God himself. Now You may well ask, well, John, where do you see that in Micah 3? That's a good question. Because the text itself doesn't actually have much to say beyond the, the rebuke and the sentence that's issued against Israel's leaders. That's why I think it's so easy to read this as a, as a moralistic parable about avoiding corruption and pursuing virtue. But, but reading Scripture in this way ignores how this text fits into its context. This is one of the reasons why we so value reading and interpreting the Bible passage by passage. The, the meaning of a, of a text of Scripture is not, re, not only related to the statements that are made in it, but where those statements are and how they relate to what comes before and what comes after. And I emphasize that because I think where Micah fits, where Micah 3 fits, is especially important in understanding what Micah 3 teaches. So Remember, Micah 3 is this judgment section of the first major part, or the second major part of the book of Micah, rather. And it's bookended on the, on the front end by Micah 2, 12, and 13, and on the back end by Micah 4 and 5. These are the, the promises of salvation and hope and restoration. And crucially, both of these bookends contain very specific promises, not just about the the restoration and hope for God's people, but that it's going to be accomplished through the future coming of God's king to restore and reign over his people and all creation. The, The central hope that's promised in Micah is that God himself is going to come to reign. The way that these chapters are stitched together, the The abject failure of of Israel's leaders in chapter 3 is intentionally bookended by these these promises of future, incorruptible, perfect, personal rule of God himself. Highlights the foolishness of reliance on human leaders and our desperate need for the righteous rule of God. You see this in... Last week we talked about it in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13... We're introduced to this figure that that Micah just calls the breaker. and We learn he's going to be both the king and the Lord himself. And then in the coming weeks, in chapters 4 and 5, we'll hear again of God's promise to reign over his people. And indeed, to reign over all the nations of the world. And in this portrait of, of promised blessedness, God himself is the one who reigns. Micah 4.7, the Lord will rule over them from Mount Zion. And in Micah 5, we see this mysterious overlap as God will reign, but he's going to reign through one who's born in Bethlehem, who will be ruler over Israel, who will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And so with these promises on either side, the contrast of Micah 3 stands out even more. The corruption of Israel's leaders in the present points not merely to the need for, for different or better human prophets, priests, or kings. It points us to the need for a, a divine prophet, priest, and king to reign in incorruptible righteousness, one who will not die and leave an opportunity for a corrupt and sinful successor. We need God himself to reign over us, and this is precisely what God promises in Ezekiel 34, which we read Earlier, he rebukes the shepherds, the nation's leaders, for their negligence, their corruption, their wickedness, their exploitation of God's people. And so God says he will hold them accountable for his sins, but he does not go on to say that he's going to replace them merely with a newer, better version of them. That's not the answer. That's not the ultimate promise. What he says is that he himself is going to come to shepherd them. We need a leader, a prophet, priest, and king who is both incorruptible and indestructible. And that's exactly who we have in the one whom Micah spoke of in outlines and shadows and who's now revealed to us in the gospel, Jesus Christ our Lord. Where Israel's shepherds, the, the prophets, priests, and kings, failed, Jesus did not. He's the perfect prophet who not only speaks God's word truly and faithfully but is himself the perfect, final, full revelation of God. He's the perfect priest who not only is the perfect mediator between God and man, but is himself the sacrifice offered to atone for sins, to bear our punishment so that we through him may have forgiveness, cleansing, and reconciliation. And he is the perfect king who not only knows, loves, and embraces justice, but will one day come again to establish his rule fully and finally to see justice done perfectly and eternally and to reign forever and ever in incomparable glory. And it is he and no one else who is our hope. He and no one else is to be the place of our supreme confidence. He and no one else will bring about the true and complete reign of righteousness and justice in the world. And there are, I think, some important impl- implications for us here. I think as we reflect on this, it should cause us to recognize the, the utter foolishness of placing the ultimate confidence of our souls in the men and women who lead our country or who we want to lead our country in the hope that they will usher us into a new golden age. We may be tempted to think that the solution to the problems we see is different or better leaders who have different or better policies. And while better, more virtuous, less corrupt leaders are certainly to be desired, they are not. They cannot be the objects of our hope. Politics and politicians make lousy gods. Yet this kind of political idolatry is endemic in our society. It's not that political awareness, concern, or involvement is not important. It is. I would encourage you to be wise in how you exercise your earthly citizenship. But friends, hear me. Don't confuse your earthly citizenship with your heavenly one. Don't confuse your earthly country with your heavenly one. Don't confuse Caesar with Christ. Don't confuse the kingdom of this world with the kingdom that is not of this world. The city on a hill that ancient Israel was supposed to be does not come to fulfillment in the United States or any other nation on earth. But in the new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ, which bears witness to the soon coming of the eternal kingdom of grace and righteousness in which Jesus reigns, as the uncontested and incorruptible, just and merciful King. And so the way that Micah reveals this this corruption in Israelite society not only serves to to indict them and announce their judgment, but it also serves to reveal our need for God's rule to come. And it reminds us that we need to, to therefore keep our own thoughts and opinions about earthly politics in perspective. So no matter how important an issue is, we should be careful to That we don't become deceived into thinking that somehow the the victory of our of our preferred politician or party will usher in the kingdom of God, or that the defeat of our preferred politician or party will somehow hinder Christ from reigning in absolute uncontested sovereignty over all creation. We should be careful that we don't think that that the victory of the the politicians that that we like will lead to flourishing for the church, and that, that the the defeat of the politicians that we like will lead to its demise. Jesus said he will build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. We need not worry. We bear witness to the coming of the kingdom. But we don't establish it for ourselves. Something he will establish when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So we bear witness to it, we seek to to live in line with its values, we call people to enter it in reliance and submission to Christ, the Savior and King, and and so while we, as God's people, ought to to seek to represent the the purity and the holiness and the justice of God's character in every endeavor and every aspect of life and society, we must also remember that our hope is not to bring about the kingdom of God on earth through better human leaders. Must guard ourselves against depending on, placing our confidence in, yes, making idols of human leaders and causes. The failure and corruption of human leaders reminds us that our first allegiance must be to Christ, our King. That our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we await a Savior. And one day He will come again in glory, and then it will be said, "The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ." and he shall reign forever and ever. In that kingdom, there will be perfect justice and righteousness. And he invites you, he invites all of us now to submit to him as the sovereign king, to learn from him as the true and perfect prophet, and to have our sins atoned for and forgiven through his all-sufficient work as our priest and sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in your truth. Use your word to cleanse us, to renew us. God, help us as we, as we consider the things that we're being instructed on in the book of Micah. Lord, we pray that your spirit would come and make your word effective, that it would transform us, that it would root out our idolatry and cause us to find our hope and place our confidence in you alone. And as we think of the corruption of human leaders and, yes, the corruption that is in our very hearts, we, we look forward to that day when Jesus will come again. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. And it is through him we pray. Amen.